Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a hard song. Anger is a hard topic. So, Lord, would you help us by your Holy Spirit? Help me to uh, preach with clarity, uh, with truth, but also, God, with love. Um, acknowledging that this world is broken and fallen, and many of us have experienced wickedness and evil in truth. And so, Lord, um, would you minister to us? Meet us where we are. Draw us closer to Jesus. And we ask for this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So, at 7.45, we actually read that psalm responsively. So half of those lines that, that were hard to hear, the congregation was actually saying. And, and we're going to talk about this, this tension that we face, but, um, man, anger is something we can all relate to, right? I mean, it just not only at the personal level of, of dealing with anger and, and how do you manage anger and that sort of stuff, but we love media. That's sort of stories about anger and vengeance, you know? Uh, there's Taken, you know? It's like there's uh, Mel Gibson's Payback. Um, I couldn't think of the name. What's the, the movie? Denzel Washington, Dakota Fanning. She gets kidnapped and he goes and rescues. I cannot think of Man on Fire. Man on Fire. Um, we, we actually, because we hunger for justice, that's why I think we like those kind of movies, those kind of books, Count of Monte Cristo. Um, those kind of books where the villain gets their comeuppance. But, but a psalm like Psalm 109, um, it seems like it's more than that. It seems like it's beyond justice and into vengeance. And so um, I think it, it's important that we slow down and take a close, make a close reading, as close of a reading as we can of the psalm and, and understand what it really has to say to us. Because I don't think, it, it clearly is not saying eliminate all anger from your life. That's not what he's saying. But I think what Psalm 109 and the scriptures as a whole point us to is that the goal for us is to have, to be able to inhabit our anger in a righteous way, to have righteous anger, not unrighteous, unruly, um, self-centered, self-protecting, um, um, self-venging anger, but to have righteous anger. And I think that's what Psalm 109 is going to help us, um, how it's going to help us pull closer to that. Uh, but, but before we do that, maybe it's, it's worth talking about the sort of elephant in the room. This feels like, it feels like, Psalm 109, feels like it's in conflict to what Jesus just said in Matthew chapter 5, right? Uh, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, anyone who hates his brother in his heart is guilty of murder. Uh, it feels like a species of that, oh, in the Old Testament, God is vengeful. It's all about violence and judgment and wrath. And in the New Testament, it's all about love and mercy and everyone just being saccharine, sweet, but that doesn't hold up. That doesn't actually hold up. If you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament, you discover that both of those realities of judgment and grace are present in both Testaments. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20, in the midst of the Ten Commandments, God defines himself. He says, you shall not, you shall not bow down to uh, any other God or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. Okay, judgment. But, verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Uh, everything Jesus actually teaches, what he just taught there in uh, you shall not murder, um, but also you shall not hate your brother in your heart, is actually from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 18, 17 you, says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, for you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then as you flip to the New Testament, it's not all just um, grace if you think grace means that God doesn't still hate sin and that God doesn't still intend to bring justice in the world. But actually there are expressions of judgment and wrath. Jesus talks about hell all the time. He talks about um, in Matthew 5, just six chapters after what we just read, he pronounces this woe of judgment, this um, expression of judgment on some cities. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, two sort of typically thought of evil cities, if, it, if these works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for you, Chorazin and Sidon, Bethsaida. Uh, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, he doesn't say, don't be angry. He says, in your anger, do not sin. So what we're, what we're aiming at is not the elimination of all anger, but holding our anger in a righteous way, having a righteous expression of anger. That's the essence of biblical wisdom, is being able to hold two teachings that apply to two different situations and apply them in some new third situation. In fact, isn't the gospel the message of grace and wrath meeting in the cross? So let's just put that out of our mind. It is not true that this is just a typical expression of the Old Testament. I don't think so. I think there's a lot in here that actually points us to all the things that Jesus is going to say while also being a robust expression of um, anger at injustice. So let's talk about anger. Um, there, I keep saying anger and injustice. Anger is, is typically connected with a sense of justice. It's typically connected. We feel angry when um, some value or some boundary or some, some kind of um, understood line in the sand has been crossed and we've been offended, wounded, harmed, or someone we love has been offended, wounded, harmed. That produces in us anger. And there's, I think, at least two, probably more, but at least two unhealthy expressions of anger in our culture and in the world. One is the obvious one, right? The person who's just angry all the time about everything for the smallest reason that you can think of. That's the sort of obvious way, uh, the, the tyrannical angry person, um, where you're constantly walking on eggshells because you, you know that they're just going to, they're going to find something to be angry about, right? Maybe some of us see a little bit of us in that. People who become very controlling, they have these boundaries and expectations that nobody else knows about. But at the moment they're transgressed, uh, the person lashes out in anger. In the book, The Cry of the Soul, which is by an Old Testament um, scholar and a psychologist, in The Cry of the Soul, they tell the story of a man who went to uh, his sister-in-law's house on like a, you know, like Thanksgiving type of family meal, family gathering day. And he's just minding his own business, peeling carrots, right? And he hears in the background the sound, the voice of his sister coming, sort of ratcheting up as she gets closer and closer to him. And he hears the scurrying of little children, you know, evacuating the kitchen. And then she just launches into him. Don't you know you don't have to wash carrots before you, if you're going to be peeling them? And she just lights into him. And he's like, I'm just trying to help. Like, what is happening? And it changed the tone of the whole rest of the time. It was a way that she was, her anger was being used to control 
the behavior of everyone else, to lay her expectations on everyone else, to let everyone in the room know that she was the one who had the power. That's, a, that's one health, unhealthy uh, expression of anger that probably we've seen and experienced. But there's another type of unhealthy anger, and that's the type of anger that pretends like there is no anger. Right? The person who quickly explains away when something truly wrong has been done to them or to someone they love, they quickly explain it away. Because they, they've misunderstood what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. They think that means that they're never allowed to feel any angry, anger over a legitimate injustice or a legitimate wrong that has been done. They won't admit that they're angry. They try to hide it, and it, they just push it down. And eventually, usually, it becomes bitterness and resentment. They, they don't want to ask the question, why am I angry about this? Or should I be angry about this? Or isn't it okay for me to be angry about this. You know, a dramatic example of this would be like in a, in a domestic situation where one spouse is being abusive in some way to the other one, and, and the victim side of that equation quickly explains away, oh, well, it's because they were, you know, they were really tired that day, or they had had a really hard day at work, or that sort of thing. That's an unhealthy expression of anger. When we are wrong, when we've been abused, when we've been mistreated, it is right for us to say, that was wrong, and I'm angry. That's an unhealthy expression of anger if we don't admit that there is any anger in us. So how does this psalm help us? I think this psalm helps us to, to in that second type of unhealth, to explore and express our anger. It says, acknowledge your anger, right? Clearly, David is acknowledging his anger, right? Verses 6 through 15 he reveals just how deeply angry he is, how, how hurt he feels or how, how fearful he was about being hurt. He calls down judgment on the lives of his enemies, the loved ones of his enemies, the livelihood of his enemies, and the legacy of his enemies. He is deeply offended, deeply, deeply angry at the state of affairs as they are. And it's right here in the Bible, right? It's a prayer, a song for God's people to sing. It says acknowledge when wrong has been done. Verses 1 through 5 and verses uh, 16 through um, 20. In both of those places, David names all the wrong that's been done to him and to others. He, he puts those sort of ad charges out there. And he reflects on his own uh, his own experience and his own fear. I think the, that all the things that he's describing, that he's, he's saying, you know, let, let, um, let them be cut off, let them not be remembered in the next generation, let it be hard for their children, to, his children to find food, um, you know, make a false accuser against them. I think David is actually just reflecting all the things that have happened to him or that he's been f- fearful would happen to him. He's reflecting them back out in these words of judgment. Because if you look at verses 6 and 7, and verse 17, so verses 6 and 7, he's saying, let a false accuser stand next to them and say false accusations and let them be found guilty when they, were, they didn't do anything wrong. That's, what, that's clearly what has happened to David in verses 1 through 5. So he's saying, eye for an eye. Let what happened to me happen to them. Or let what they were trying to do happen to them. These people who love cursing, well, then let them be cursed. These people who don't want to bless, then let them be blessed. He's saying, uh, you might, you might see these verses as describing David's own experience in a sort of uh, mirror fashion. One Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, he put it this way. He said, we should notice that this sort of psalm, this invective, this sort of 
a cursing psalm, has its own way of speaking in which horror is piled upon horror to express the speaker's sense of outrage. So part of that hard-to-read section from 6 to 15 is David expressing just how deeply he has been hurt, just how deeply he has been wronged, just how deeply evil and wicked the actions of these people have been. Some of you in this room, some of us in this room have experienced real harm, real abuse, real mistreatment, real wickedness. And we need to be able, this psalm gives us the permission to say, that was wrong, and I want justice. I am deeply, deeply angry about this. You know, it is, it is not a virtue to call evil good. God, God tells the prophets to tell Israel that all the time. It is not a virtue to call evil good and good evil. So this psalm says, call evil evil, and that's okay. And God wants you to do that. So that challenges maybe the person who, who feels like they can't be angry or feel angry or admit something has been wrong if it's going to make them feel angry. But of course, this psalm also challenges the other, the person who's the, um, the volatile, angry person. Look at these verses. It says, the psalm, um, I think this psalm shows us that righteous anger is not just about a reaction to a personal offense. It's not just about a reaction to a personal offense. It's not that my feelings, just that my feelings have been hurt or that I feel dishonored in some way or that I have been inconvenienced. And we're not talking about like, this is not someone cut David off in traffic and so this is how, this is how he responds. Or, or their employee didn't, do, didn't follow through on the same they were gonna, thing they were going to do and this is how David responds. Or your spouse, for, you know, um, your spouse spoke to you, you know, in a, in a short, kind of rude kind of way, and this is how you respond. That's not what it's saying. It's not just about this reflexive anger, but actually look at these verses. It's actually not even just a one-on-one situation. There are multiple enemies. Verse 2, it is the mouths of the wicked have spoken against David. In verse 5, it's not he, but they. They have done these things. In verse 20, as he comes back to the charges in the second half of the psalm, these are my accusers, not just my one accuser, but a, a group of people, and that those were the ones who did, uh, who returned my love for hatred. There's a group of people, and, and so it's not just David versus somebody else, and then there's also, there's also multiple victims, apparently. If you look at verse 16, the wicked these, these people that David is calling down judgment on, the wicked pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted, it says. There's, there seems to be, it's not just David, but this is a pattern that these people have done. It's a pattern of wickedness, a pattern of evil. You know, if we think of a biblical example, we might think of when the Babylonians came and they judged, uh, through, God judged Israel through the Babylonians and they carried people off into exile and the Edomites, who were the the neighbors to Jerusalem, as people from Jerusalem like escaped and ran away to kind of flee to, to the mountains, the Edomites would round them up and bring them back to the Babylonians. They pursued, you know, it's this wicked group that's pursuing the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted, the defenseless. There's a pattern of wickedness. There's multiple enemies. There's multiple victims. And so it's not just a, a personal slight when David's having a bad day and he lashes out with anger. Verse 1 through 5, we see um, that it's, it reads like a pattern, right? There have been words of deceit, words of hate, words of accusation, and evil return 
for, for love, you get this sense of there was a back and forth happening between David and the people he represents and between the wicked. In verse 17 and 18, he, the, the wicked, clothes himself in cursing. You get the sense of this is the person who just relishes putting other people in their place. Bringing, being the person who disrupts the peace and harmony. You ever, you ever had like a, God forbid you have a family member like this, but you ever had a boss who just like likes to pit people against each other? And that's one of the ways that they control is just kind of throwing their weight around and being this sort of domineering presence all the time. That's the sense that you get, I think, as you read these verses. It's, so it's not a reactionary thing when David is crying out for judgment, for justice as I read it. So this challenges the volatile angry person, doesn't it? It says, first of all, um, some, maybe something worth saying, first of all, make sure your anger is actually anger. Some, some of us, because we're not emotionally healthy, the way we've learned to express all of our emotions is as anger. When we get sad, we're angry. When we're disappointed, we're angry. Any negative emotion becomes anger. That's not what we want. Um, and, and then secondly, it challenges us to reflect this thing that's causing me anger in my heart, in my mind. It's making me want to lash out like David. Does it actually fit the situation that David is responding to? Or is it just about me? Is it about the common good? Is it about the protection of those who can't protect themselves? Is, it about, um, is, this, is this a pattern of things that have happened? Is it multiple people assailed against me or assailed against those who I represent and protect? Because in all, in, in all those ways, David problematizes our sort of simple reading of his psalm. So it challenges us. Reflect on what is making you angry. Is it a pattern of behavior that negatively impacts others? Or is it just about you and, and how you've been inconvenienced or feel slighted? Finally, the psalm teaches all of us, challenges all of us, that the way to have righteous anger, we, we, we admit when we've been deeply wronged, but we also reflect on our anger and, and ask, is this just about me or is this about God's ways and God's purposes? But then it also um, calls all of us, whether, whatever end of the spectrum we might think of ourselves as falling on, to trust ultimately in the, in the justice and love of God. The psalm says that righteous anger doesn't trust in me, right? It doesn't say vengeance is mine, says Curtis. It says vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We trust in the love and justice of God. David doesn't take matters into his own hands. And you notice, when in, even in those hard verses, he doesn't say, I'm going to do this, right? In fact, he says in verses 22 to 25, just how weak he feels, just how inadequate he feels to this situation of, um, this anger and justice and, and partial desire for vengeance and trying to sort all that out, he says, I'm, I'm too weak. I can't, I can't do it. And even in the, those verses where he's calling out for judgment, he does it kind of indirectly. Did you notice he doesn't actually address God in any of those verses? He doesn't say, God, do these things. He just sort of says out loud, may this happen, may that happen, may this happen, may that happen. But he doesn't say, Lord, do this. As if David himself is a little uncomfortable even with what he's saying. He nowhere says, I'm going to inflict my vengeance on my enemies. 
Because as we get to the end, end of the psalm, we realize because he's trusting in the love and justice of God. He's humbly submitting even his expression of probably legitimate injustice to God. Once we get to verse 21, and then again in verse 26, he calls out for God's steadfast love. That's that famous Hebrew word chesed, the, the covenant love of God, the faithful love of God, the saving righteousness of God, the loyalty of God, however you want to translate that. It's the mixture of God's um, just and righteous commitment to his people in love. That, that he promised to bless those who bless and curse those who curse. God says, that's the God I'm going to be for you. And so David is bringing this anger, this injustice, this, um, the, the things he's witnessed these wicked people do. He's bringing all of that under the hesed, the, the faithful, loyal, righteous love of God. And if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then, then that hesed is for you. That love and grace and justice and truth is, is for you. That, that is where our hope, that God will, Jesus will come again and judge the living and the dead and make all things new. That his kingdom, we sang in the very last line of A Mighty Fortress, his kingdom is forever. There's a day coming in which his justice will be perfectly known in all the earth. And that's what I hope, and not in my own ability to take vengeance or lash out or put people in their place or control others with my anger, but my hope is in the hesed, the, the faithful loyalty of God coming. But even as I say that, I have to recognize that the, the same steadfast love that I hope in that God will bring his kingdom is the same steadfast love that sent Jesus into the world. It's the same steadfast love that caused God to pour out the wrath for human sin on him on the cross, that I might be brought in, that though I was wicked and though I was evil and though that I deserve judgment, I have now been, now been brought in to the family of God through repentance and faith. And so even, even as this psalm encourages us and allows us, permits us, and says, cry out to God with your anger, cry out to God with your injustice, it also slows us down and reminds us that there but by the grace of God go I. That I was the one, verse 31, that uh, the Lord stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. I was the one who was going to have my soul condemned to death, but Christ rescued me. And so even though I pray for justice, ultimately what I pray for is for transformation and the conversion of my enemies. We pray not only that God's justice would be known on the earth, but that God would give even our enemies the gift of faith, that he would transform them by the Holy Spirit, and that in his unbelievable, miraculous way, he would actually reconcile us to them. That's what Psalm 109 is all about. The Lord stands at the right hand of the needy one. The, the Lord is right at our right hand. So let's trust in him as we face anger. Let's try to have righteous anger. It's not, not about getting back what's owed to us or controlling other people, but it's truly about trusting in his steadfast love. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We do give you thanks for the hope of a world that has been restored. We give you thanks for the hope of a world where, where the truth will out. And all the sorrow 
and anger and injustice that we feel and seen have experienced, God, will be brought out into the light and that your perfect justice will reign on the earth. And Lord, we know that one of the ways you make your perfect justice reign on the earth is by calling sinners to yourself. People like us. People like those we count as enemies. And so we trust, we entrust ourselves to you. We hope in your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.